All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hey, everybody, we're back in Corinth. A place more messed up than here. But not by much. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you're new here, we started an effort back in the fall to begin walking through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Um, we got a couple of months into it before we shut it down for the holiday season. We did Advent stuff together and New Year stuff together. Uh, but that season is long gone now. It's over. It's packed up and put away. And so it's time to pick Corinthians back up. And, uh, and so the letter is called 1 Corinthians, uh, but it's more likely the second of at least four letters that we know of um, that was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in the Greek city of Corinth. The letter that we call 2 Corinthians is likely the fourth of those four letters. Uh, there could be more than that, but we know of at least four, we think, based on what we see in the two texts. Um, and so, Paul helped to start the church there. Uh, he spent about a year and a half, we think, in Corinth before he moved on from there to start churches and other projects in other cities in the ancient world. Uh, and so uh, by the time he's writing this letter, we think he's about two to three years removed from his stint in Corinth. Right? And so all that is to say, this is not some stranger writing to uh, a church he doesn't know. In fact, he knows Corinth incredibly well. It's a young church that Paul had an incredibly massive role role in shepherding and discipling. Many of them were one to faith by, uh, in, under Paul's ministry, whether he did it himself or other guys he was helping to lead. Uh, uh, many of the people that are there came to faith likely when Paul was there as the quote-unquote pastor, if you, you want to call him that. And boy, are they a mess. They're a gigantic mess. There's infighting, there's rampant sin, and as if those two things weren't bad enough, they figured out a way to, to outdo that by actually uh, reveling in and celebrating that rampant sin. They wear it like some kind of badge of honor, it seems. The Corinthian church had a, had a wheelbarrow full of problems and gospel misunderstandings, and they desperately, desperately needed to be addressed. And whether you're whether you weren't here back in November or maybe you remember it was just getting a little slow these days, uh, we, we discovered in, in chapter 4 that the, the root issue, the core level issue producing that wheelbarrow full of problems was pride. That's, that's the, the core level issue that everything else was flowing out of. They thought a little too highly of themselves. In fact, they thought way too highly of themselves and they carried what I think is a desperate desire to be seen and respected by those outside of the church, outside of the family of God. Now, respectability doesn't sound all that bad at first. In fact, it sounds like a pretty good thing. Respectability can be a valuable tool. And, and you know what? In, in certain ways of looking at it, maybe you could even argue that it's something that God would actually call his people to pursue and chase after. I mean, get a little more respectability around here. Maybe we might start filling this place up, right? I mean, that's a good way to fill up a church, get some respectability out there. But the reality, the reality is that, that God has built out his kingdom to be intentionally upside down from the kingdoms of this world. Different things are valued. Different things are celebrated and rewarded. I mean, I mean the very center of our faith revolves around a bloody king hanging on a cross, naked, not exactly a respectable moment, right? Anybody look at that and go, we need more of that in our world. In chapter 1, Paul calls the word of the cross folly to those who are perishing. 
seems foolish to the world. It seems worthy of mockery and contempt. We're a long way from respectable. And the watershed question I think everybody has to reckon with is really simple. Is that some kind of giant cosmic accident? I mean, meaning, did, did God struggle to come up with a salvation story that, would, uh, that, would, that our cultural sensibilities could get behind and celebrate? Or is, is, is the upside-down nature of the cross there precisely because God wanted it to stand in stark contrast to our cultural sensibilities? Is it some kind of cosmic accident, or did... Or did God intentionally place a stumbling block in the way for all those who would seek to enter his kingdom based on their own terms? And Paul argues, I think, I think quite authoritatively and, and well, that Paul argues that it's the latter. It's upside down on purpose. In fact, there's no doubt about it. God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from the kingdoms of this world. It will be abrasive and it will be critical of most of the things that we hold dear and want to spend our time chasing after. The Bible is actually unapologetically declaring that we have been conditioned by a sin-broken world to love the wrong stuff. It goes there early and often, over and over and over again, and that includes God's good kingdom. It's upside down on purpose. But the question that we've been trying to discipline ourselves to to continue asking as we read through this letter is, okay, but is it beautiful though? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, If the answers to those questions are yes, well, then that means that pressing through the temporary moment of awkward is actually, it actually turns out to be a relatively small price to pay. That that momentary disorientation, it's, it's on our way to a much better, even eternal reality. But the Corinthians, man, they they failed to see to see that. They hadn't bought into that yet, and they they were still chasing after that cultural respectability. And respectability in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. But at the end of the day, they were were putting all their chips in. They were hoping to receive that respectability from a people who were supposed to, to value different things than they did. And see the world differently than they did. And Paul tells us at the end of chapter 4 that truly having both isn't really on the table for them. I mean, just look around at how the apostles are currently being treated as, as Paul writes this letter. Cultural respectability does not mesh well with, cult, with a culturally contemptible cross. Those things, those, don't, those things don't hang out together. We live in a world that rejects even the need for a Savior. And then we have the audacity to come in and preach a salvation that is both a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, Paul says. Upside down on purpose, but beautiful. So we shut things down back in November, and and part of the timing for that, we we shut down a couple of weeks before Advent, uh, but part of the timing for that is because there's this shift that occurs in the text as you enter into chapter 5. In the first four chapters, Paul addresses larger, I think, thematic issues of this upside-down kingdom of God. But beginning in chapter 5, he starts going to to fleshing out how the upside-down kingdom uh, answers Corinth's specific problems and gospel misunderstandings, and and, and that sinful problem 
pride that they, they struggled with, it wasn't just a theoretical thing. It, it, it expressed itself out in the real world. And so let's look at uh, chapter 5 together, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, so I say this all the time around here, but it's as true this morning as it has ever been. Anybody who thinks that the Bible is boring is proving that they've never actually read it. This is Jerry Springer level stuff we're talking about. Paul gets back the report that, that there's a man in this church who has a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And so this is likely a young man and his stepmother. It, there's a, some other options in there that it may be even worse. But best case scenario, this is a young man and his stepmother. Dad's not in the picture anymore somehow, some way. We don't know the details. But that's the, the story as it's been reported. And it doesn't matter how progressive you think you are when it comes to, to sexual ethics, everybody has a knee-jerk reaction to this scenario. And Paul even points that out. He mentions, he mentions that he says, this kind of action isn't even tolerated among the pagans. Not only were the Jews explicitly commanded to avoid such things, Leviticus 18 primarily, but even the Romans had laws against this stuff. What we're talking about here was seen as a capital offense in the Roman colonies. Minimum punishment would have been banishment. Sometimes it carried the death penalty. Corinth in their day was, was known for a lot of sexual deviance. Uh, if you have any familiarity with the Corinthian letters, you, you know that that's a, a major theme that Paul has to address over and over again. Uh, so Corinth was known for, for sexual deviance. There was a temple to Aphrodite there. Temple prostitutes would have been a normal thing in that town. All right? uh, and so uh, there's sexual deviance all over the place. The city was also the administrative center for a, a major shipping route. It was kind of in the middle of this isthmus, and there, so there were two port cities on each side of it, and, and Corinth was kind of this administrative capital of the region. And so uh, you had port city over here, and then they would go through Corinth and then port city over there in order to, to skip sailing around the, the lower half of, of Greece. And, and so, uh, and so uh, there, there was a lot of culture, and there was a lot of money flowing through town. It was a commercial and cultural influence just surging in and, and out of the city. And so that kind of environment, I think, always kind of ends up spelling out licentiousness. When you, have, uh, when you add expendable income to, to pluralism, you, ten, you tend to discover brand new ways to sin. That's how the world tends to work. And on top of that, Greco-Roman culture in general was incredibly sexually exploitative. It wouldn't have been uncommon at all, at all to, to see slaves and traveling concubines in that culture. In a town with a lot of people flowing in and out, hotels were full. And Paul here points to what's going on in the Corinthian church, and he says that even the pagans think you've gone too far. So we're dealing with a high-level problem here, right? Even those blinded by sin and valuing the wrong things concerning sex, even they think you're crazy. Maybe that's a red flag. But we're not simply talking about some rogue person that 
you know, checked out a Bible study one week, and as a visitor, we're talking about an active member of the church. And so I, I think an important question to answer is, how in the world did the Corinthian church get here? Right? How did, how did the Corinthians find themselves in this situation? Well, in verse 2, Paul calls them arrogant. He calls them arrogant. So, so what's that about? Well, it's not completely spelled out for us in these first two verses, but remember, this is an issue with a backstory, right? And, and so Paul and the church already know the details. They've been writing letters back and forth here. Paul knows, maybe even knows some of the people involved in this specific scenario, but there's a backstory here, and so we can put the pieces together from here and some other things that he says in the rest of 1 Corinthians and even in, in 2 Corinthians. But the, the leadership of the church actually held up the example of this relationship as proof of their maturity and their deep understanding of God's grace. When we put the pieces together, that's what we think we figure out. That the Corinthian church didn't merely tolerate the sin, they actually celebrated this sin. They patted themselves on the back for, for how gracious they were being. In other words, isn't it wonderful how compassionate and forgiving that we are that we would celebrate even that? Uh, if, if you were as gracious, if you understood grace as, much, as well as we understand grace, you'd celebrate it too. That's the tone here. The leadership of the Corinthian church, they didn't merely overlook the sin. It appears that they even attempted to make much of themselves in their condoning of the sin. They used it as a platform to celebrate themselves. And so as grotesque as the sin is, notice that Paul actually flies right past it. Who's he talking to? He flies right past the specific sin, and I think deals with a bigger problem. He doesn't address the sinner directly. He actually addresses the leadership. Now, because we, we live in the culture that we live in, I'm forced to offer what I think should be an obvious qualifier. Um, this does not mean, at, in any way, shape, or form, that the sexual sin is unimportant to deal with. Um, we're going to get to that. Paul's going to uh, nail that down in the rest of chapter 5, and he's also going to come back to sexual sin at the end of chapter 6. So we're going to talk about it a lot, actually. Um, and so uh, we're, we're going to discuss sexual deviance in the Corinthian letter over and over again, but Paul actually has a much, much bigger problem to focus on in the immediate moment, and it's a tragic failure of leadership. He says, Your celebration is arrogant. What you should be doing is mourning. I'm sure you already know this, but um, you don't mourn unimportant things. That's not how mourning works. It's not what comes out of us when you, when you lose something that doesn't matter. You don't mourn innocent foibles and silly little peccadilloes. You mourn what matters, right? You mourn when you lose something that's priceless and can't easily be replaced. And so what has been lost here? And secondly, is it at all possible to ever get it back? Well, we see a little bit of, of what it is in the very last part of verse 2. What does Paul say? He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So whatever has been lost can begin being repaired again by kicking this guy out of the church. Hey, who has a strong opinion about that kind of stuff? 
Anybody? You laughing? For some of you, you've never even heard of such a thing. Can they do that? Our, our church is allowed to kick people out. I didn't know churches did that. I mean, I thought they were supposed to be gracious and patient with folks. Can churches do that? I didn't know churches could do that. Others of you are like, yeah, you get them. We reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. You kick them out of here because we don't want no riffraff. Whether you've heard of it or you haven't, what we're actually talking about here is something that would, that's commonly referred to as church discipline. Church discipline, and, and I guarantee you, it flies completely in the face of our modern Western worldview. It is upside down in every possible way, uh, not, not just one way, a whole bunch of ways. In fact, it's just dripping with upside down kingdom realities here. But store that away for now. We'll come back to it later. For now, look at verse 3. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present uh, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, so to be honest, verses 3 and 4 are a little bit complicated. They, they, they just really are. In fact, a lot of commentators actually choose not to address them. And so that, that might work well for them, but it's a luxury that I don't get to invoke. Um, Paul, Paul seems to be saying here that even though he is absent with, from them physically, his spirit is still present with them as they pronounce the judgment that needs to be pronounced. Uh, how does that work? I'm not really sure, actually. Um, he leans on this idea of a, of a unified spirit of, uh, among God's people, which sounds really cute and all, but he also seems to indicate that, it, that it's important because his spirit supposedly carries an extra level of authority, as if that, as because he's there with them in spirit, that now makes it official. He uses a bunch of idioms in, in these three verses from the secular judicial world. Judgments are pronounced. He's, he says, when you are assembled, which kind of harkens to the idea of a tribunal or court proceedings. He, he also uses the idea of delivering someone to their punishment, like a, like a jury handed down the punishment and the bailiff carries them off, deliver them away. And so the prevailing theory here is that, that Paul leans on his apostolic authority here to apply judicial pressure. And remember, he, he leaned on it. I know it's been a while, but he leaned on that apostolic authority uh, quite a bit at the end of chapter 4 as well. But he leans on this vested authority he has as an apostle to declare how the ruling ought to play out. In other words, he's not offering a suggestion here. He's giving a command. He'll let Corinth have a little bit of leash on other things, but this situation is apparently severe enough that he's no longer allowing them room. He has told them what needs to happen. He's now stepping in with authoritative instructions. So what does he say to do? He says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Oh, what a fun little weekend. Sounds quaint. Can't you imagine that bed and breakfast sign? Delivered to Satan. I know that sounds really harsh and all, but I get that, but if you didn't catch it, the flip side of the coin actually frames this as good news. Right after that, he says, so that his spirit may be saved. Paul's other writings inform us 
that the idea of delivering someone to Satan is probably not as apocalyptic sounding as, as what it immediately strikes us as, what we immediately imagine it to be. We're told that, that Satan is the ruler of this world, like Ephesians 1, right? He's the prince of the power of the air. And so I think Paul is simply saying that if this person wants to act like the world, then go ahead and turn them out into the world and let the ruler of this world deal with them for a while. And the hope, the hope is that in that time, he will see his destitution. He will realize his need for a Savior. And the hope is that he will come to repentance and he will return. Yeah, his flesh may get beat up for a while, but maybe this is the wake-up call that's needed for his soul to finally be saved. And this is, I think, yet another place where we see the beautifully upside-down kingdom peek its, peek its head through. See, not only did the Corinthian church fail to consider sin more seriously than the pagans did, remember it was capital offense, right? And so banishment would have been minimum. The Romans, sinful Romans, would have kicked this guy out already. Not only did they fail to consider sin more seriously, but here in verse 3, we also see that the purpose of this discipline is redemptive, not merely punitive. It's redemptive. The Roman punishment just got rid of the one causing the problem. What, what God is calling for here through Paul's command is actively engaging an, with an aim at future uh, restoration. That's what Paul's talking about. Yes, the, the sin is vile. It has cost something that ought to produce mourning in God's people. But grace, like, like actual grace, it's way better than the, whatever version the Corinthians held on to and tried to celebrate restorative. It pushes the sinner to be fully reconciled to Jesus through true repentance. The grace that Corinth believed they held onto, it wasn't, it wasn't grace at all. At the end of the day, it was nothing more than a dismissiveness of sin, which means it was really a dismissiveness of holiness. At the end of the day, people who are called to represent an infinitely holy king, dismissiveness is not something that we get to play. It's not something that we get to celebrate. It's out of bounds for us as God's people. Why would that be the case? Because it's a false representation of the holy king and who he's called his people to be. So not only does expelling the unrepentant sinner create a pressure point for them to hopefully deal with their sin, but it also, at the very same time, guards the integrity of Jesus' holiness. And that's either important to us or it's not, right? We take his holiness seriously. He's righteous and good. His grace is not cheap. It was purchased at extreme cost. And we, as his people, have a responsibility to accurately represent him to those outside of the church. There's a, there's a third thing on the line here. It starts playing out in verse 6. It says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, so leaven is not the same thing as yeast. 
Right? I know we commonly uh, speak of it interchangeably like that. I know uh, they kind of do the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Yeast wasn't really something that was existent in that part of the world, in that part of history. They did have leaven, though, which is a fermented dough, right? Uh, my wife has an Amish bread starter on the, sitting on the counter, or at least she has for the last uh, few weeks. I think she's on round three right now. Um, and so if you don't know how Am- the Amish bread stuff works, you... you let it sit and ferment and add flour and sugar and all that kind of nonsense to it and for like 10 days. And then when it's finally time to make the bread, you use most of it to make the bread and then you save out some more to, to, to keep back for the next starter, right? And so I think Katie's on her third batch right now. Don't tell her. I think she's done after three, all right? <laughs> Katie likes having a project, but Katie Woodard ain't got time for that, all right? Come see me if you want to set up a pool, see if she'll go for four. The winner will get some Amish bread. Leaven is the picture given all throughout the Bible to speak of the persistent manifestation of sin. Over and over again, that's the word picture that God pulls in to teach his people. It works its way through everything you allow it to get close to. And so several times throughout the year, God commanded his people to clear out the house, get all the leaven out of there, clean it out, sweep it out, make sure all of it is gone. Not because God hates Amish bread, although he might, but because it was a teaching moment about the seriousness of sin and the need to root it out completely from our lives. And and Paul alludes to to some of those Old Testament moments starting in in verse 7. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says in verse 7, As you really are. We're supposedly already sinless. How, How does that work? the gospel, followers of Jesus because of Jesus have been declared righteous because of his finished work on the cross, because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We have had the guilt of our sin washed clean and we have been clothed in his perfect righteousness in return. But listen, leaven will continue working its way through the dough until you actually get rid of the leaven. You can add all the, the flour you, you want to. But the whole thing's going to end up leavened dough. We have been declared righteous because Jesus' perfect righteousness has been gifted to us. But if you just let it sit there, those who have been declared sinless will not just magically act sinless. Sin will continue to spread. And so the Corinthians' failure to remove the unrepentant sinner from their fellowship, it allowed for others to, watching it all play out, to to believe that that sin was not merely acceptable, but maybe even a, a good thing, and maybe should be a celebrated thing. It has a fermenting effect on the rest of the dough. The continued presence of unrepentance allowed the rest of the Corinthian church to be given the false impression that holiness doesn't actually matter. It isn't really that big of a deal. The the church's failure of leadership to deal with open sin, whether we're talking about Corinth, we're talking about here, we're talking about any other church that's trying to walk in what God has called them to walk in. A church's failure of leadership to deal with open sin never, 
ever stays isolated to one singular instance. Like leaven, it always spreads out and works its way into everything you allow it to stay close to. Always. This is why some churches seemingly have a revolving door of major sin issues. Over and over again. It doesn't matter how much flour you keep adding to the batch. It all becomes fermented in the end. Always. You've got to get the leaven out of there. You've got to deal with the root level sin issue here. And so Paul calls their attention back to the Old Testament festival of unleavened bread. Otherwise known as Passover. He says, hey Corinth. You're celebrating the, the wrong thing here. You remember that, that festival? You remember that thing that our God has called us to, to, to do every year as a reminder, as a, as a teaching point? Let's sweep out the house. Let's, let's root sin out of existence. And then, oh, then let's celebrate that God ultimately provided the sinless sacrifice that we actually needed to get there. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. So let's call time out there. See why we believe that 1 Corinthians isn't the first time we're addressing these issues? All right, so there has been at least one letter so far, and based on other things that we're going to see down the road in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to begin answering some very specific questions they had for him. So there's been at least one letter from Corinth to him by this point too. So there's a back and forth dialogue here. So Corinth is, um, but carry on. All right, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, uh, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Uh, since then, you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. All right, okay. So there is a massive, I think massive misunderstanding by, by both those inside the church and outside the church when it comes to, uh, uh, to what God's people or how, or how God's people are to relate to those who are walking in open sin. I think there's a massive misunderstanding. And I see this comment mistake play out so often it makes my head spin. All right? Just absolutely drives me bonkers. The idea the idea seems to be that God's people have a short fuse all right, for, uh, for the sins of those outside the church and an incredibly long fuse for those inside the church. And there's a form of twisted logic in there. I, I, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. We preach clearly against the sin of everybody, but maybe, maybe we are, we're, we're now like lovingly patient with those who have claimed grace and are now supposed to be a part of the family. Like we, have, we have a family-level patience with those who are, who are trying, right? I, I can see how that would be a convincing argument to some. I can. And so maybe, maybe we've earned that wrong understanding by a practice. Not the first time that's happened for us. The problem with that, though, it's, it's literally the exact opposite of what Paul just commanded. The exact opposite. He says, when I told you in my last letter not to associate with sinners, I did not mean those who don't know Jesus yet. Why? Because everybody who doesn't know Jesus yet is a sinner. You can't find somebody who doesn't love sin who doesn't know Jesus. That's what they do. What else are people going to chase after other than wrongly ordered things if Jesus hasn't changed their heart yet? They don't know Jesus. Of course they're going to love that sin. What better thing is on the table for them yet? He says, but for those who do claim to love Jesus, 
for those who claim to have repented of sin and come to Jesus in salvation. Their public love of sin is a public hypocrisy. So if that sin has risen to the level that the church must address it, Paul's command here is to distance yourself from that person completely. And he really means completely. Don't don't merely remove them from the fellowship of the church. He says don't spend any time with them outside the church either. Don't even eat with them. Oh, but don't they need a friendly gospel witness in this season? Sure they do. Absolutely they do. But there is a world of difference between a friendly gospel witness and a normal friend. Those are not at all the same thing. And the reality is that a status quo relationship may indeed be more comfortable. In fact, it's way easier not to fight those fights. I get it. I've been in that position. I, I, don't, I don't like that position. But the status quo ignores the eternity-sized problem that needs to be addressed in your friend. It kicks the can down the road hoping someone else will do the hard work and deal with it. What they need is a wake-up call to the severity of their sin. And the sad reality is that giving them an ally to continue ignoring that problem will only end up making the problem worse. Just how the world works. If someone claims to love Jesus but walks openly and defiantly in their sin, we have a biblical mandate to treat them as someone who doesn't know Jesus. No matter what's coming out of their mouth, you can see the fruit. Your friendship isn't unimportant. Of course it's important, but they need the gospel more than they need your friendship. And it's going to take a dramatic and often painful effort to convince them of that. Oh, but that feels backwards and upside down to me. Yeah, yeah, it does. But is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? To call something like this a loving act is going to confound this place. Right? Just go ahead and bank on it. This doesn't make sense to those who don't know Jesus yet. Not at all. But Jesus modeled for us what sacrificial love actually looks like, didn't he? It absorbs pain. It soaks up cost for the good of the beloved. He says, I'll own it for you. So Paul clarifies his earlier teaching here. He says, we are to have short fuses with those who claim to be saved by Jesus, and we are to have longer fuses for those whose hearts haven't been changed by him yet. Now, does that create new questions about patience towards those who are new in the faith? Sure it does, but Paul's not aiming at that here. That's not what he's teaching on at the moment. Those questions are actually pretty easily answerable. The answer is, yeah, you have a lot of patience with them. Help them grow. But Paul's not aiming at that. Right now he's dealing with the backwards mindset of the Corinthian church. And so look at verse 12. It says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so we preach openly and aggressively against the sin of the world, but not... But we do so for the purpose of calling men and women to saving faith in Jesus, right? It's never merely to clean up the world. 
That's not what we're aiming at, church family. It is not our job. I hope you understand this, but if you don't, hear it now. It is not our job to stand in judgment over the sin of the lost. It's just not. Right? They, they have a judge. And newsflash, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. They have a judge. We can work our tails off to make this place, the world that we live in, the culture we find ourselves living in, we can work our tails off to make this place a little less sinful than it was last week. But we will never, and I mean ever, prevent anyone from spending an eternity in hell. Salvation comes by no other way but by grace through faith. Full stop. Now, if you're the swing the pendulum to the other side kind of person, that doesn't mean that we don't preach aggressively against sin. The Bible is crystal clear. As clear as it is about anything else, the Bible is crystal clear that it is through the preaching of sin that people can now see their need for a Savior. As a requirement in a gospel presentation. You've got to handle the sin issue or all you're talking about is a nice spiritual thing. The gospel begins with we are sinners with a debt we cannot pay. doesn't matter how hated it makes us. We ain't backing down from that. People need Jesus too much. So we'll preach aggressively against sin. But speaking to church leaders here, speaking to those in charge of leading those in Corinth, Paul says it's not our job to try to purge the sin out of our culture. That's God's job. He's much better at it than us. He will handle it in his own way when he sees fit. But for those who are a part of the church, that job does belong to us. We've been called to keep our house clean, and so we must do the hard work of purging sin, the often painful work. We guard the clarity of the gospel by purging our own sin. We lift up and exalt the holiness of Christ by purging our own sin. We have integrity as we call others to repentance when we purge our own sin. And believe it or not, we actually build up the unity of the church body when we purge our own sin. When a church considers holiness more important than our own prestige and comfort, we lean together on the God who's actually capable of giving us both. He unites us to each other as he unites us to himself when we do what we've actually been commanded by him to do. I'll admit, Paul's instructions here, they don't, they don't make any sense if you're trying to run a Fortune 500. These are principles that the greatest business leaders of our world would look at and scoff. But then again, the upside-down kingdom of God doesn't seem to concern itself too much with that. Bigger aspirations. The question to be answered is, is it beautiful? The Corinthians, they weren't convinced of that yet. They, they, were, they were still caught up in chasing after what I think were cheaper victories. So Paul's got a lot more work to do, for sure. But how do we respond to something like this, right? Like, surely we don't have to wait for court to figure it out. How, how do we respond to this, especially if our culture doesn't look all that dissimilar from theirs? 
Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same thing as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text. Listen, this ain't some game. We're not playing church here. Our king has called us to some things, and one of those things is to take his holiness incredibly serious. And, and I get it. This, this idea is completely upside down from the consumer, consumeristic culture that we live in. They are worlds apart. We've, we've created an environment, even within the church, where the first inklings of trying to hold someone accountable for sin is going to cause a lot of folks to go looking for a different option. Right? Can we just be honest about that this morning? I'll take my church membership somewhere else, thank you. I prefer a lighter commitment. Our the customer is always right mentality tends to kill things off before they can even get off the ground. And so how in the world do you press into this? Like how do you even, even begin to take steps to, 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 to buy into this? How do you get to a place where you can actually trust that God's design is better and more fulfilling even when it feels backwards and inside out to us? Well, I think like every other upside-down reality, I think you've got to lean on the character of the one who's, who's prescribing it. What do we see from him? The one who lovingly pushes us to care about eternal realities more than temporary realities. The one who who took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death, yes, even death on a cross. Uh, Is he he beautiful? Is he good? Is he true? Does he make eternal promises in an otherwise fading world? And if the answer to those questions are yes, then maybe that temporary awkwardness is okay. Maybe it's a momentary disorientation on the pathway to a much better eternal reality. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time set aside for you to, to put action to what God has uh, stirring in your heart. If you're here this morning and you, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I think you can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. The, the Bible teaches that we are all by default separated from God relationally be, because of our sin. It's, it's not the church's job to judge you. It's just not. But listen, God will. Oh, he will. And he sees all. He doesn't just judge the actions. He judges the intentions, how you think you're gonna, it's going to go. I know based on what I know about my own heart, it, it won't be a good day. It, it just... Won't. It's not the church's job to judge you, but it is God's job. He is holy, he is righteous, and his wrath is owed to you for your sin. But God made a way where there was no way. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He, lived, uh, he, he died on a cross uh, as a perfectly innocent substitute to make payment for the sin debt that you owe. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now the king who conquers sin and death. He calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. To trust him and him alone for salvation. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. If, if you're here with us in person, I'll be standing down front. You, you don't need me, but I'd love to be helpful to you. If you're watching this online right now, you can use the contact form that's linked in the video description. Listen, you can respond to Jesus right now in this moment. I'd love to help you walk that path. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. 
But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond, let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures, even ones that are really hard to listen to. Even ones that we want to buck against. God, it's obvious that that your kingdom is upside down. It's obvious that your king stands in your kingdom stands in stark contrast to the values and the systems and the things that are celebrated in the world around us that are even celebrated in my own heart. By default, I want to naturally chase after other things. So help me to see that your kingdom is better. Help me to see that your kingdom is more fruitful. Help me to see that even though it's going to feel awkward at first, that your kingdom is eternally good. God, change our hearts by your word. Convince us of your nearness. Convince us of your goodness. And forever change us by your word. Make us a church that loves your holiness more than cultural respectability. We don't have to hate that respectability, but oh, may we never chase it. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? The realities of your kingdom are so severely different from this place that I think you have to open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. And so would you do that this morning? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom by your good grace? Would you expand your kingdom this morning, even right now? Would we fall in love with the king even more than his good kingdom? So in Jesus' name we pray.